Hi, my name is Lauren, and you're listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Catherine Brading, Penny Weiss, and Anlis Ray in a conversation hosted by Yosef Washington. The New Narrative podcast with Yosef Washington, second-year PhD student at the Philosophy Department. I am joined here by the illustrious Catherine Brady of Duke University, the illustrious Penny Weiss of St. Louis University, and of course the illustrious Anne-Lise Ray of Notre University. <laughs> so how are y'all doing this morning? Doing well, thank you. So we're all here from like dis- different disciplines, and even those of us that share the same discipline, there's different uh, subject areas. But one thing that you all three uh, share in common is study of women who are, in my mind, and should be in the mind of many others, like titans uh, in the field of philosophy. So my general question to all of you would be, how did you guys, how did you all come to study women in philosophy? We'll start with you, uh, Dr. Catherine. <laughs> right, thank you. Um, so I kind of fell into this by accident. So I didn't mean to be studying women in the history of philosophy, but the project that I was working on took me to um, Emily du Chatelet's Foundations of Physics, which is a book that she published in 1740. So I picked up this text and I'm reading it and it was perfect for the project that I was working on. Um, and then I began to run into some of the obstacles that I've since learned are very common mm-hmm. um, for people who have an interest in um, women in philosophy and for philosophers, women philosophers from the early modern period. And so that got me in, more interested in, okay, well, what are the other women who are out there? And then I began to meet people who've been working on this for some time and began to learn more about, about the field. So that's what happened to me. It was because her work was absolutely perfect for the project in philosophy I was working on and began to open my eyes to some of the issues. Dr. Penny? All right. So I love that you called them titans because it's been a monumental battle to get some of them recognized at all and that some younger scholars see them as such impressive figures is just warms my heart. Um, so I got in very much intentionally. Um, what brought me to the study of women was the women's movement, um, which taught me to ask questions like, where are the women? Um, and to look not only at how we had been excluded, um, but in fact where we had existed in the cracks or um, had existed out front but been lost to history um, through misnaming and misrepresentation and so on. So, um, yeah, I think I just started reading. um, I didn't read any women philosophers when I was in graduate school, so when I got out, I started my own education the first course that I took taught my first year out on um, on feminism and political theory. About half of it was on um, feminist critiques of canonical figures, which was also just having its beginnings as women were entering the academy in greater numbers. Um, but then we taught the first few f- women figures that I had heard of. So we did a little Wollstonecraft, a little Beauvoir, and, and a little Emma Goldman. Those were the first ones I knew about. And then ever since then, I've just been looking for them in every school of thought, in every historical period, because I just assume that they're there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Annelise? Thank you. 
And there are three things that led me to be interested in the place of women in the history of philosophy. First, a personal reason. When one is a woman and teaches philosophy in the university today, is there a singularity peculiar to our philosophical identity? Or does this question no longer make sense? In other words, a sort of historical reflection on the identity of the woman philosopher and especially philosopher of science. At what point did the discourse on the woman philosopher emerge, change, become self-evident, then disappeared as a specificity that had ceased to be one? And what are we doing today about this story? The mark of progress, an object of study to understand where we come from, an instrument of analysis to remain vigilant with regard to the new forms of domination. It's my first reason, if I may. The second reason is intellectual. I work on the relationship between science and philosophy in the 17th and 18th century. And in this context, I met a number of figures of women philosophers, Anne Conway, Margaret Cavendish, Emilie du Châtelet, etc. The question is how to give them a place in equal measure with that of philosophical men in a new history of philosophy. This is a work Karen, Catherine and I have been, have been doing for a few years in Lisa Shapiro's new narrative in philosophy project. And the question arises precisely because this place is to be built. It, doesn't, it does not seem to exist in the current histories of philosophy. Mm-hmm. In this context, the position of different women philosophers are very different. Some are recognized in their time, others are disqualified. But therefore, what we have to do is to reconstruct the philosophical and intellectual links, which historically make it possible to locate these texts and these authors. And I am long, I know. But my, <laughs> my, my third reason is philosophical and is very short. It is necessary to show the ph- philosophical power of these texts, which have been often disqualified as pertaining to eclectism, popula- popularization, And that is really our job. Mm-hmm. So a couple things before moving forward. Um, some of the questions that I have are inspired by particular things that you all will say or things that I've scholar-stocked from you. <laughs> um, but they're actually open questions for the table, but they're just the spark. So something that you just said now and what I took from uh, scholarly-stocking Uh, Dr. Catherine, was uh, this use of language like narrative on your website. You talk about some of the figures that you're studying as like the main characters and supporting cast. And I noticed like a lot of use of narrative and things about storytelling in how you describe your work. Is that intentional in how you describe it? Is it the nature of studying these figures that makes you want to cast things out in narrative terms? Or do you see your work in philosophy as telling a larger narrative in general? So for me, it is, it's part of a broader way of thinking about how we do philosophy and thinking about the importance of remembering that we're always telling and retelling our own history and philosophy. So we're always making choices about who to include, what questions are important, what kinds of things we're looking for answers. And those are choices that we're making now. And so what we receive from the past is people who've made those choices as they retell and they're situated in how they do that and so on and so on backwards. And just remembering that we're not receiving something that's sort of dropped from the sky as the canon and that doesn't have a history of its own. 
Um, and that's not, at least in my experience as an undergraduate receiving my philosophical education, it did seem as though this canon had dropped from the sky and was sort of in some sense eternal and not a historical object itself. Mm. And so, yes, this use of um, sort of main characters and supporting cast and narrative is very deliberate to just remind us that that's what we're always doing and this is part of what we're doing and when we retell our history is also making a statement about where we want to go in the future as who we are as philosophers. So at least for me, yeah, it's deliberate. I just have a, a couple of quick thoughts. I think my answer to that would largely be based on the historical figures that I study. So, for example, they wrote in and experimented greatly with a variety of forms. And so I think our openness to form and thinking about storytelling is something that we kind of inherit from them and pay homage to them by doing that. Also, they handed down not only their own work, but often handed down the stories of other women that they were trying to preserve. And I think even tracking down some of those stories that, that they were trying to give us is a worthy enterprise. And finally, maybe building on what Catherine just said, you know, we're handed down this canon as if it was inevitable and that the conversations between the canonical figures was somehow preordained as well. And those conversations between canonical figures are created by us. And we're trying to create new conversations that include women figures. Yes, that is, including new uh, new narrative and uh, new uh, women figures in this new narrative. Exactly. And there are different challenges. So, I mean, for me, Emily du Chatelet was, is low-hanging fruit in a way. She's this easy target because the reason that I got so interested in, in her was because the kinds of questions that she was asking, the kind of work she was doing was very familiar to me from the other figures that I'd been working on. And so it's relatively easy to incorporate her into pre-existing stories. But mm -hmm. what has been really eye-opening for me in meeting other, other people who are working working on other figures is the extent to which those choices about which things are important to tell and which topics and the ways of talking about philosophy and what counts as philosophy are also have been choices that have been made and are elements of the kind of power relationships that are going on. So in your work and in Annalise's work and other work, that's been important for me to see that, to see yeah, that these other voices require us to think again about what counts. Right. As, Even the conversations yeah. women had with each yeah. other, which have been lost to us almost entirely, like that hasn't counted on influence as influence, that women have influenced other women. But but you're right that people like de Chatelet, where she influenced men, like it's a little bit easier to recover and place her. Um, so the challenges can be quite difficult. So one thing I pick up from your comments is that particularly with studying women in philosophy, how they construct and form their philosophy takes on a multiplicity of forms. There's a little bit of a mixture of expertise here. Two of you are really steeped in Emily du Chatelet. Penny is very well read in Mary Estelle. Is it Estelle or Astel? You get to pick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go with Estelle for now. So how has reading their work shaped how you view your discipline now? Currently in graduate school, you're given like this myth about how philosophy is supposed to be written and how philosophy has always been written. But a quick glance at the history and then a quick glance at the figures that you all study show that that's not always the case. There's not always this rigid structure. So how has studying these women influenced how you view the discipline? Um, so I'm a political theorist by training, um, although I'm currently located in a women's and gender studies department. But the, the field in which I was trained is absolutely organized by what 
certain big boys have said and done and um, by the conversations that they've had or been made to have with one another. So they have determined the time periods that we distinguish in the history of political thought. They determine the theoretical alternatives that we think are out there to choose from among. They have determined what count as important questions. And I think all of those things need to be rethought. And the process of rethinking that has been, as uh, within the discipline, incredibly slow. And there's been a tremendous amount of resistance. So I periodically do things like look online at syllabi that other people are offering. So the most recent search I did was for a talk I was giving. I did research on how people are teaching medieval political thought. And of the first, I don't know, eight or 10 syllabi that I looked up, of the figures that were listed, there wasn't a single woman. And then I looked actually at the textbook that some of the courses were using to see if maybe there were some women included in them. And there was one book that two classes were using that had one woman in it. And that's only because the co-editor of that anthology was a Pizan scholar, Christine de Pizan scholar. Mm-hmm. If she had not been there, the field would be entirely taught by what uh, male figures have have said. Yeah, I think it's given me a greater appreciation of just the strength of the conservative forces that there are within the discipline, just for purely practical reasons like this, that we often teach classes where this is not our main area of expertise. So you teach what you've been taught. And time constraints realistically are such that you're not going to go and completely redo a syllabus, even if you know that it's important. So you might add a little bit here and a little bit there. And it just takes time. And it's a huge amount of effort. And then other things have happened to me that. So, for example, a young colleague who I would not think of as being somebody who's sort of wedded to the canon and things, I was talking to him about my work on Du Chatelet and suddenly sort of look came across his face and he said, oh, so you're not working on her because she's a woman. So there's this kind of background environment where if you work on a woman figure, you Mm -hmm. must be doing it because she's a woman. There are all these things going on that... For me before, I mean, this is sort of, you know, an awakening thing, you know, I had been invisible to me that have become visible just because I sort of happened to start working on Du Chatelet that, yeah, it's been very interesting. Of course, the other figures were studied because they were privileged white men. So, you know, the fact that we might choose to, to pick some for different reasons is no, not necessarily illegitimate either. But, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I think we sometimes think of, you know, we have a, a bit of an age prejudice and we think that the resistance will come from older scholars who are more traditionally trained. But I think precisely because of the work, Catherine, that you've just said is um, mandated by retraining ourselves. Some of us who are older have had the opportunity to teach things 10 and 15 times and to include many any more figures by this stage in our careers. And so our syllabi and sometimes are, are more progressive and farther away from what we were taught than are, are those of people right out of grad school. For me, I am convinced that it is most often more effective in editorial and educational work to introduce the study of women philosophers not as separate objects of reflection that could be categorized as women philosophers of science in the classical age, but in the context of thematic courses. For example, this year I gave two courses, one on the laws of nature and the other one on the notion of certainty. And within these two courses, I introduced as an obviousness the analysis of text of Emily du Châtelet, which arouses a lot of interest from students who discover a woman philosopher, they do not know at all. And they discover that it could be interesting, Um, which is still amazing for philosophy students. 
I find. In the same way, I find it's effective to alternate specialized studies, for example, on the epistemology of Emily du Châtelet, to show that there is something philosophically consistent to make a book, as Catherine just did, and as I will do on my side too, and mm. books <laughs> that show is natural, if I may, insertion in a more general reflection, for example, on the natural philosophy of the Enlightenment. So not only do we have different philosophical interests, but we're also practicing in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. Dr. Annelise, you are primarily based out of Europe. Catherine and Penny, you are both based in uh, the U.S. How is the location in which you study women philosophers affect your the reception of your work? So do you feel like it's received differently when you're in Europe? Is differently received when you're in the U.S.? Does it differ depending on the type of universities, whether or not you're at a Research One university or a small liberal arts college? How do you feel that the location affects the reception of your work? So I, I haven't noticed a big difference between talking about Châtelet in Europe or in the UK or in the US. For me, the similarities are stronger than differences. And that is that there is, a I do feel, as a sort of a moment here, a sense that it's time for change and that this time we really, it's not going to be a sort of a little effort that goes away. This time there's going to be real change and we are going to make a difference and that it, this is going to reach starting in the undergrad graduate curriculum and just snowball from there. So I'm hopeful. And that to me stands out more than any differences. But I don't know what the rest of you feel, what your impressions have been. So I've only taught in the U.S., but at conferences have been at many international gatherings. I think that the study of feminism and of women thinkers brings people together across a lot of boundaries because there are so few of us and because our home base of support, wherever our home is, tends to be rather fragile. Um, those ties become more important. And so even not only across national borders, but across disciplinary boundaries, we tend to come together. So I'll just give you an example. Because my own training in the history of women was so terrible, and like the women I study are more of an autodidact, but I did have two opportunities to study with other people after I got my PhD, and those were at two NEH summer seminars, one on feminist epistemologies and one on integrating the social and political thought of women into the undergraduate curriculum. Um, one of those was taught by two philosophers, and the other was taught by two historians, one of whom had an appointment in a political science department. And I think the ability to come together over how important and how exciting these new areas are has enabled us to really reach out. Uh, perhaps I can answer um, by describing my um, experiment and perhaps more generally the obstacles I had encountered before. Uh, they were of two types, but they come together. Either one wondered about the philosophical consistency of Emily du Châtelet. Could one really say that it, she had the same philosophical dignity as of true 18th century philosophers like Voltaire, Diderot, or Rousseau. And besides that, also why this problem? Because in France, there is always a form of disqualification or scepticism with regard to what is a French philosopher of the 18th century who does not have the solidity of a Kant, for example. And it's even worse in philosophy of science, since I have often been asked what Émilie du Châtelet has produced effectively, really, as a scientific theory comparing to Leibniz or Newton. As though we do work on women philosophers, a militant and feminist fight, and this is yet 
another way to disqualify it in terms of its philosophical power. We work on Emilie du Châtelet because we are militant or because we are feminist and not because she is a true philosopher. It could be perhaps the two obstacles, the philosophical consistency, but by two ways. I would, would build on what you said, Annalise. I think um, that was really well said, that in a way, the figures that we study lack credibility. People aren't familiar with them. They doubt their importance. And we sort of inherit that skepticism. So we become, as students of these figures, less credible ourselves. And that's true as we go up for tenure. It's true as we try to get our work published in journals that haven't published work about these figures before. And so, yeah, you're you're fighting for a kind of authority in your work that other people don't have to fight for. If I can add something, it seems to me that we can invest the, the question and uh, use this opportunity to question the boundaries of the philosophy, mm. of what is philosophical and what is not. What can be considered philosophical and what is not. And it could be interesting to have this opportunity precisely to answer to this doubt. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. So I want to ask you all a question about when the study of uh, woman philosophers came in to your interest throughout your career. So for people like my colleague, Lauren Forbes, uh, I feel like she's always been studying <laughs> uh women philosophers and has been like sort of an expert for the department on, for me at least, for Mary Estelle. So, like, uh, any of the readings I had, I'm like, yeah, Lord, what did, what did Estelle say about cupcakes? I haven't <laughs> into it. So, um, but, Catherine, you talk about um, studying the history of science and then finding Emily Deschatelet. What was, the, like, the phenomenology of that experience to, like, discover someone who is so influential and who is also a woman? It's like finding, like, a secret treasure. What Can you all describe what was that moment like when you first discovered somebody? Yeah. Um, so I'd known about the existence of her book, The Foundations of Physics, for a long time and people had mentioned to me, oh, you know, you might find that interesting. Um, but I hadn't picked it up. And then my project had taken me into the early 18th century. And I was fortunate I was on leave. So I had time to pick up things that I didn't know for sure would lead to somewhere. So I pick it up and I start reading it. And it's on exactly, she's writing about exactly the questions that I was interested in in the early 18th century. That's fantastic. This is great. And then, so, all right, where's the secondary literature? You know, I need to see what people have said about this. This is a wonderful text. Almost no secondary literature. How is this possible? Okay, well, maybe I'll do a seminar on this. Okay, let's make sure that it's all been translated into English. No, only part of it has and not by philosophers. And so it was this, I don't know, moment of, well, this is very exciting, but also really shocking. This book that is so clearly important for issues that were absolutely central to natural philosophy at the beginning of the 18th century. And yet I hadn't come across it really before. It was only by accident that people had mentioned, people not in philosophy, by the way, who'd mentioned the existence of this text to me, that it hadn't been translated and that the secondary literature, you know, I could read in one afternoon everything that had been written about her text as a text in natural philosophy. And that includes the things that had been written, not because they cared about what she had to say, but because the main question was, is it possible that she could have influenced, had any influence on what Voltaire wrote, um, because she and Voltaire um, knew each other personally. So even the questions that people were asking about the text on the whole were like, I don't want to 
know that. That's not what I'm interested in. So it was really quite emotional. So it was exciting because, wow, you know, this is something great that we could work on, but also it's kind of depressing that the literature didn't exist. And I had this big project I wanted to be working on. I didn't want to spend the next four years working on Du Chatelet. I had these other questions I was interested in, but it became, right, well, this has to be done first before I can get on with other things. So that was my own kind of personal experience of great and awful at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. As a, a scholar, you know, I wrote some of the earliest articles on a number of figures, whether Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Estelle, Sage Shonigan, Christina Pizan, and, and it is quite daunting, especially after having done a dissertation on Rousseau about whom eight million books have been written to come across these figures that seem to me every bit as inspiring and thoughtful and, um, and to find the number of items I could count on sometimes one hand. But I want, I want to speak a little bit more to that kind of response that you asked about when um, discovering some people. And, and maybe I'll tell you two quick stories. So the, the darkest period that I can remember in graduate school was having to take a class in medieval political thought. I thought this is why they call it the Dark Ages, right? It was just a terrible experience. <laughs> um, we read only Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, and and they were misogynist, anti-Semitic, and just one thing after another. And, and then after I was out on my own, I can't remember how I found it, but I found Christina Pizan's book of the City of Ladies. And I, I can picture myself sitting in this room and reading through the, the first few chapters and slamming my hand down on the desk and saying, I could have been reading this <laughs> all semester. Like, I was stunned and I was angry and I was thrilled to find this other thing. But it was it was a whole body-mind experience um, at realizing that in every time period, in every school of thought, there were undiscovered figures. And I had the same thing when I when I first read Mary Estelle. I was laying down on my stomach. Again, it's this very vivid memory, uh, laying down on my stomach on the bed, uh, uh, reading reflections on marriage, and just being so stunned at not only what she wrote, but how she wrote, like um, speaking um, with so much passion and rigor that I was hers. <laughs> she had me. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, I discovered uh, Emily Duchatelet because I worked on the, recep the reception of Leibniz in 18th century. And um, it changed my conception of what is history of philosophy because it was not possible to interpret the text as a an example of reception, and more generally, it was a discussion about what is uh, affiliation and historical affiliation, uh, an influence, why the category of reception is um, not very useful, and whether to decide um, that I found my new hero, and it is, and it is in this case. Uh, a woman hero, I rather decide to um, change my point of view about what is history of philosophy and to give to um, Emilie Duchatelet some other colleagues mm -hmm. and to, to place her in a, a community of philosophers who couldn't be wanked mm. in uh, the category of Leibnizian reception. 
Yeah, I think that's really sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's very important that yeah. So the questions that we ask when they start being about reception and to you know to what extent did this figure correctly or incorrectly interpret the the major figure that they're receiving? We're already starting on the wrong foot and starting on in the wrong place. And to make that transition to allow the author to speak for herself and to have her own project is absolutely crucial. So my final question. Is a not too out there, but it's there. I work in metaphysics, and as in metaphysics, we like wacky thought experiments. So I want three of you to imagine that you are now the divine emperor of philosophy, and you can go back and change one thing about how we teach philosophy. Um, a misconception you think should be erased or a positive project that should be pushed forward that would just become standard, almost a dogmatic-like adherence to it, what would that be? Um, Well, actually, in something that I've written, I called for a five-year moratorium on writing about the big boys for every individual (laughs) academic, and that would force them to go out and read new people. Mm hopefully to start allowing them to frame some of the questions um, and only after there's some grasp on them and having taken them seriously. I mean, I almost think we need to stop what we're doing for a minute to really hear some new perspectives and to let them do the shaping of the questions. Um, like, And I think that's within the power of every individual to do, to say, I'm going to stop footnoting these people. I'm going to footnote those people, and I'm going to explore these different authors. I'd like It takes that intentional of an effort. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I want to pick up on something that Annalise said. I think sounds less radical, but I think it would be powerfully transformative if we just said, right, from now on, we're going to teach topics-based rather than figures-based, and everybody who teaches that has to do two things. They have to bring, when you teach it yourself for every topic, you have to bring several texts that were not part of what you were taught and that you, in some sense, feel uncomfortable bringing to the classroom as a philosophical text, and you need to invite your students to bring whatever text they like and put them on the table. And we teach this, when do we just look at the ideas? And we teach and we do philosophy on these texts without deciding beforehand what counts as a philosophical Mm. text. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea. (laughs) But just, um, yes, uh, perhaps uh, just uh, give to the student the means to study this text because for example in French there were no so many uh, uh, texts available mm-hmm. okay uh, yes woman, written by woman philosopher but I was not sure that I like your question because you you would like we imagine a uh, what what did you ask? Uh, you become the divine ruler of philosophy. <laughs> the, the, the divine? What does it mean? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, it was a joke. <laughs> that's, a philo- that's a deep philosophical question right there. Nonetheless, I will take yeah. the post. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we can end it with a little bit of a public service announcement uh, to the kids out here. As an, a man once said by the name of ODB, Puff Daddy is cool, but Wu-Tang is for the kids. So this here is for the kids. If you hear what we were talking about and you like studying something and when you're really deep in researching something and you feel that spark that all of our guests here have talked about, you can do that as a career. So going to graduate school is basically training to become a professional nerd, which I think we we all all like our status as professional nerds, I say. (laughs) 
All right. Thank you so much for joining us for New Narratives in Philosophy. Thank you for listening to the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. The New Narratives Project and podcast are funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. In the spirit of the project, the music for the podcast is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre Sonana No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizarrid Amonish. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website newnarrativesinphilosophy.net and follow us on Facebook. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.